talked a lot about trembling, sang a lot about trembling this morning. Have you ever trembled before God? Has God ever scared you to death? Chances are, if you haven't experienced some measure of trembling, it's because you've never come into contact with God. Anytime God shows up in the lives of people in the Bible, they hit the ground. They're afraid. And you say, well, I would probably hit the ground if he showed up visibly like he did in the Old Testament. Well, people hit the ground when they hear God about God and his word, too. And I would just pray this morning, and I have prayed. I was walking to Starbucks with my son this morning and praying and feeling totally, absolutely helpless to do anything good for anybody this morning. And that's a good feeling to have. That's a good feeling to have. And what I was feeling and what I was praying is that God would do what I can't do. And Pastor Keith prayed what I couldn't do, and I'm thankful for that. I want you to have the experience this morning of a man by the name of Thomas Bilney. Here's a guy you haven't heard of. He lived in the 1500s in England. But I want you to experience what he experienced. He became a Christian through the verse that I'm going to preach to you this morning. And my hope is that Bilney's experience will become yours. Searching for peace and unable to find it, he wrote the following. I chanced upon this sentence of Paul, O most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This one sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, which I did not then perceive did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins. That's where Bilney trembled. And being almost in despair, that even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leap for joy. That's my desire for you this morning. That's my desire for all of us, is that... Bilney's experience would become ours. Well, what text is he referring to? He's referring to the text found in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So if you take your Bible, turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a, there should be a Bible in the pew rack, and that is near the end of the New Testament. So if you just kind of turn to about the last part of the Bible, and if you get to Revelation, you're too far, but if you go back a little further, you'll find 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. The focus of my preaching is going to be on verse 15. Paul's writing to his assistant, his son in the faith, Timothy. He's left Timothy behind. He's planted a church and he's left Timothy behind in Ephesus to put in order and uh, be, the, be a shepherd over that flock. And here's what he writes to Timothy, recounting God's grace to him in verse 12. It says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. 
Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, this sentence applies to everyone here this morning because we're all sinners in need of a Savior. I pray this morning for the same work performed in the heart of Thomas Bilney for everyone here, that you would wound us with the guilt of our sins and heal us with the gospel of free grace. I pray that this one sentence, through your instruction and inward working, would bring despair and wounded sinners into a marvelous comfort and quietness. Break prideful bones this morning. Pride is the only thing that would keep us from believing these great words. And let the bones you've broken rejoice in your mercy. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's dive right in. Four things I want you to notice from 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's the first one. The gospel is true and trustworthy. The gospel is true and trustworthy. Notice verse 15. The saying is trustworthy. Now, calling attention to certain sayings as trustworthy is pretty pretty consistent in the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are these three letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And Paul says about four times the saying is trustworthy, and then he'll say something. It's similar to saying something along the lines of, this is so true and reliable, and you need to receive it as such. This is absolutely certain. This is something you can bank your entire life on. So when he says things like that, like he does in 3.1 and 4.9 and 2 Timothy 2.11 and Titus 3.8, the saying is trustworthy. What he's trying to say is, hear me on this, listen to me on this, receive this as from God himself. Now, this is an amazing statement. The first thing that Paul says about the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, is that it is true. And the reason I say that's so amazing is because to say anything like that in our day is totally controversial where the concept of truth is being assaulted by the postmodern and pluralistic thinking of our age. Now, what do I mean by that, postmodern and pluralistic? Well, I mean that most people today believe that there is no way that you can ascertain anything as being totally true. There is no such thing as universal or objective truth that applies to everybody. Rather, all the so-called truth that we believe is merely just subjective. We believe it because our culture, our parents have taught us to believe it. You can't expect other people in other cultures with different backgrounds to believe what you believe. So we all have our own truth, which is, is right and is as much right and has as much right to respect as everyone else's view of truth. And this is what we call postmodernism. However, to make that statement that there is no absolute truth is illogical, is it not? Because saying there is no absolute truth is a truth statement in and of itself. So, however, there's, that's not the only problem that it's illogical, but also it contradicts and doesn't fit anyway with the way we live our lives. I was reading 
I don't read the New York Times very much, but I stumbled on this article, and it's surprising to find defenses of absolute truth at all in the New York Times, but I found one. Errol Morris provide a fitting illustration of the problem with the subjectivism of truth in his opinion column in the New York Times just three days ago. Here's what he wrote. For those who truly believe that truth is subjective or relative, ask yourself the following question. Is ultimate guilt or innocence of a crime a matter of opinion? A jury might decide you're guilty of a crime that you haven't committed, that you're innocent. But it's possible the legal system is rife with miscarriages of justice. Nevertheless, we believe there is a fact of the matter. You either did it or you didn't. Period. If you were strapped into an electric chair, there would be nothing relative about it. He concludes by saying, Most postmodernist professors agree that truth is relative except when it comes time for tenure. <laughs> well, moreover, not only are we postmodern, but we are also intensely pluralistic as a culture. What do I mean by that? This means as a culture, we not only believe that everyone kind of has their own truth, but also that everyone's truth is right. We affirm the validity of every faith and ideology and demand in often shrill tones that we abandon as impossibly arrogant any attempt to convert somebody, let alone everybody, to their opinion. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul spent his life trying to do. Look at verse 3 of First Timothy chapter 1. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul charges Timothy right here to get in people's faces if they're teaching things different from what he's teaching. Any different doctrine. And in fact, he says, here's a guy who really believed and taught that anyone who teaches a different doctrine is devoting themselves to a myth. Now, in his, Paul in his own day and us in ours would consider Paul to be absolutely arrogant to make a statement like that. That is the height of pride to say that you have the truth. How could he make such a claim? Well, he didn't claim to have the truth for himself. He didn't claim to lock himself up in some sort of study for years on end and read all the books and, all the, and observe all the stars and meet with as many different wise people as he could and kind of pieced all this stuff together and came up with the truth. God showed up in his life and spoke to him from heaven. The only way that we know, the, excuse me, the only way we know the truth is if God reveals it. God is truth. So unless God showed up in the life of Paul and spoke to him and told him what, who he was, who Christ was, what the message of salvation was, all that, then he is just speaking a myth himself or speaking his own opinion. But Colossians 1.5 describes the gospel that I'm going to preach to you this morning as the word of the truth. It is the word of the truth. In our high school small group, we've been considering the issue of truth as we work through a DVD curriculum called The Truth Project. And one of the main questions of the last two weeks has been this question in John 18.37. Jesus says this in John 18.37. Don't turn there. Just listen to what Jesus says. 
He's on trial before Pilate, and here's what he says. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Now, there are not, to my knowledge, any other times where Jesus emphatically says, this is why I was born, this is why I came into the world. And right here he says it. Here's why I'm born, here's why I'm here. I came to tell you the truth. And according to this verse, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he came into the world to save sinners. Well, obviously then, testifying to the truth is describing the way that God saves sinners. So how do those two things fit together? Well, Christ came into the world to save us by leading us into a knowledge of the truth. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to know something. God desires you to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The reason that you have not embraced the knowledge of the truth, the truth is one of two reasons. Number one, you've never heard it before. Or number two, you have heard it and you've rejected it. Now, let me tell you biblically why you reject it. Okay, because the Bible tells us why. The Bible tells us why people reject the truth. They love darkness. That's one answer. They love their sin. They don't want to count the cost and follow Christ. But here's 2 Timothy 2.25's take on the situation. The reason you do not believe is that you've been captured by the devil to do his will. And you don't know that because the devil wants you to live your own life. He doesn't want to show up. That makes him obvious. He would rather exercise little influence on you and just get you to live a normal American life that does not think much about eternity or God or Christ. So my prayer that through this morning has been that God would grant you to repentance, leading you to a knowledge of the truth, and that you would escape from the snare of the devil who's taking you captive to do his will. Christian, do you struggle to believe that the gospel is true? Do you sometimes struggle to believe that the gospel is true for you? Well, take encouragement from John Calvin. Here's what he says. Although God the Father a thousand times offered to us salvation and Christ himself preach it, we debate ourselves if it actually be so. Therefore, whenever any doubt shall arise in our mind about the forgiveness of sins, let us learn to repel it courageously with this shield. It is an undoubted truth. So, so take that as your shield. And if you struggle, if you think Christianity is kind of this, if you're on the outside of Christianity, you're kind of looking in and saying, those people got it all together, I'm broken and, and helpless, and, and I've really, I really don't have it all together, and I've got to get it all together before I move into that Christian group, you're wrong. That's another way that the devil keeps you captive to do his will. Is he keeps you thinking that Christians are perfect, and he keeps you thinking that Christians are hypocrites, one or the other. Well, we are all hypocritical to some degree, because we're sinners, But I invite you to bring your doubts and bring your struggles into the church. God can handle your questions. God can handle your objections. God can handle your problems. The Bible addresses them. So don't let that keep you. And Christian, don't ever think that you have to put on this holy, perfect mask in order to attract unbelievers. That's phony. That's false. And people are put off by it and they see right through it. So be honest. Be authentic. Tell them that when you wake up in the morning, you feel dead spiritually sometimes. Tell them that when you wake up in the morning, you don't feel like praying. 
Tell them when you wake up in the morning, it's hard to fight sin. Those kind of things. Let them in on those struggles. That's a little aside. Let's move on to number two. Not only is the gospel true, but the gospel is intended for everybody. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy, and here it is, deserving of full acceptance. That is worthy of all acceptation by all people. Everybody should receive it. It's intended for everybody. The offer of the gospel is universal. Flip over one page to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and look at verses 3 to 6. Paul's encouraging us to pray for leaders and kings and all those who are in authority. And then he says in verse 3, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Notice, God desires all people to be saved. He's one God. There's all people and there's one mediator between God and men. Just one, the man Christ Jesus. There's one go-between. There's one Savior. There's one hope between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Say, how can that be? How can that be? One God, all people, with lots of different beliefs, and yet one mediator. Here's why. All those people are men. They're human beings. Their culture is not fundamentally what separates them from anyone. They're human beings made by God. Therefore, they need the one mediator provided by God. That's it. So the gospel is intended for everybody. Don't you wish sometimes you had that one key that could open everything? I, I lost my keys this week to my shed. And I desperately needed to get in that shed for a number of reasons. Number one, my son was out of diapers. And I didn't want to have to go buy them. So, but what was a great, great was that there was a gracious gift from my parents. They gave us a ton of diapers. That's the best gift you can get at a baby shower. And we got a ton of them, but I locked them all up in my shed. And Judson, my son, loves to play with the keys that belong to the shed. And so somehow he got a hold of the keys. He lost the keys. So I need to get in there, not only get diapers, but my lawn is looking like Proverbs, overgrown, looking like the lazy man. And I need to get out there and mow it. And my neighbor said, by the way, you know, he's just walking by and he's like, you ever think about pulling that grass up? And that's just like convicting. So, so it's like, that's not a good testimony to my neighbor. So I'm down on my hands and he's pulling grass up. And I, I need to get in there. And thankfully, Jeff Chappell shows up. Jeff Chappell is a stronger man than me. And Jeff was able to get the bolt cutters and break it off. But at that time, I, I, lost, I lost my shed keys. And I was just thinking, you know, I, I wish that I had just a key that fit for every, every single lock. Well, that's the gospel. The gospel is the key that fits in every single heart. It fits every single heart. It's intended for everybody. It's the one key. It fits in every single culture. In fact, in the context here, Paul uses himself as an example of someone who is saved, but he's not merely talking about his own personal experiences, though that doesn't apply to anybody else. He is sharing his personal testimony here in 1 Timothy 1, but he's not just sharing it and saying, Helping people will say, oh, Paul, that's so good for you. I'm glad you found Jesus to be all you need. Because in verse 16, he says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience 
as an example. He's using me as an example for who? For all those who are going to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul is obviously not merely recounting his personal experience. David Wells says it well. He says this. The apostle's declaration of the gospel was not simply a telling of his own private experience or his own personal opinion. It was not what had become true for him. It was a proclamation of truth for everybody. The gospel is the same for all people in all ages at all times. Everyone here today needs this message. Now, why? Why is it deserving? Paul says that the gospel is trustworthy. It's true saying worthy or deserving of full acceptance. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say that? Here's why. The gospel is worthy to be received by everyone because in it, it is calculated to do you the most good by God. You experience nothing but profound benefit from believing and following Christ. So therefore, to reject the gospel is to slap God in the face and say, no, that is not the best thing you could give me. In fact, it's the very best thing He could give you. What else can God give you except His Son? What more do you want? He can't give you anything else. He's given you the thing that He values the absolute most. He's given you His treasure laid it out there for you and said, receive him and everything that he's done for you, and I will accept you and receive you. It's calculated by God to do you the most good for this time and for eternity. And we must receive it. And it's deserving of full acceptance because of that. Number three, the content of the gospel focuses on the purpose of the life and death of Jesus Christ. I've already said the gospel is true. The gospel is intended for everybody. And here's what the gospel is. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Here it is. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I call it salvation in a sentence. That is the Bible. Right there. The Old Testament predicts it. The New Testament fulfills it and displays it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, who is Christ Jesus? Well, we learn a lot from just these verses. Number one, he came into the world. That at least implies his preexistence. He came into the world. It also implies that he came from somewhere else. And while it's not explicit here, it is explicit in Colossians 1 and Philippians 2. So we don't have to hang our whole doctrine of Christ on this text. He did come from heaven, the eternal Son of God, becoming a human being, born of Mary, a teenage virgin girl. So, that's not the only thing that's in this letter or in this context about Christ. We already read 1 Timothy 2.3. He's the one mediator between God and men. So he's obviously coming by the plan of God to be a mediator, to be a go-between, a referee in between the offended God and the offender man. Why do we need a mediator? Why do we need a go-between? text tells us Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We're sinners. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, there are lots of different ways to answer that question. If we turn to, I was thinking about this yesterday. If we turn back to Psalm 1, Psalm 1 says, Blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on their law they meditate day or night. So what's a sinner according to Psalm 1? A sinner is a person who takes their cues for how to live from other people. That's all a sinner is. Blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who don't follow what Oprah and Dr. Phil and other people tell them what to do, psychologists, whatever. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. This is, this is my tell. A wicked person, ungodly, does not know Christ, tells you to do something, and you walk in that counsel. That's all that a sinner is. That's it. It's not seeking your direction for life from God. That's it. But the context of this text lets us in on what a sinner is. Look at verse 8. I'm going to read it here in a minute. Verse 8 through 10. Did you know there are two ways to be a sinner? Two big categories. There's the immoral sinner and there's the moral sinner. Two different ways to be a sinner. You can be immoral, like verse 8 through 10, or you can be moral, like verse 12 through 14, like Paul was. Let me explain. Look at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Those are the, when we typically think of sinners, those are the people we think of. Those are the sinners, people who hate their parents and disobey and break the rules and sleep around, have babies out of wedlock, all that stuff. We think of all those. Those are the sinners. That's not the only kind of sinner. There are moral sinners. Paul was one of them. Look at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Now, this is Paul seeing his sin for what it really was. But back when he was doing this stuff, he thought he was doing the will of God. He was a Pharisee. He was righteous. He followed the commands of God. He looked down on other people. He looked at them and said, they don't know what the will of God. These Christians, whatever they're doing, stone those people. Would you just stone them? Read Acts 8. It's all going on. And he's looking down and condemning all these Christians and opposing them because he thinks they're opposing God, when in fact he's opposing God. This would be quintessential to, like, Islam today. Islam is a worldview that is demonic. It sees itself, they see themselves as doing the will of God when they're doing the will of Satan. But this, can, this doesn't have to operate in any kind of religious context. It's somebody who just, like, I basically do what... I mean, I keep, my, I keep the laws. I do what God asks me to do, I think. I, you know, I try to live the best I can. God knows my heart. That's a moral sinner. That's still somebody who's not seeking their counsel from God, not getting their thoughts about heaven or hell or salvation or Christ from the Bible, but are just getting them from themselves. So we all fall in one of these two categories. We are all either 
immoral sinners or moral sinners. Okay? We all either blatantly disregard and break the will of God or we passively disregard and break the will of God. Tim Keller, I think, explains it well when he speaks to these two categories. He's talking about the parable of the prodigal son. Are you familiar with that parable? Jesus tells this parable, and it's mainly meant for righteous people. It's mainly intended for those who think they're keeping the law of God and doing okay. It's not in, we always think of the prodigal, that guy who went out and just stole his, or took his father's money, got his inheritance early, and went out and spent it on prostitutes and living a crazy life and all that stuff, and then comes back to his father hoping that his father will take him back. We typically focus on that aspect, and that's true. But there's also another brother. There's another brother. He's the elder brother. He's the older brother sitting back, working, staying on the farm, obeying his father. Hates him, though. Doesn't like him. And is scoffing at his brother. Jesus is saying, look, both of those people don't know the father. Both of them are sinners. And here's what Tim Keller says. They are both rebelling against the father. One did so by being very bad. And the other did so by being really good. You can rebel against God and be alienated from God either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them. You can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws. A man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors, you read through that verses 8 through 10, say, I've never done any of that stuff. i never smacked my mom. I had sex with my wife. That's it. I'm good. What can you ask? A man who's violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be just as lost as the most profligate immoral person. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It's putting yourself in the place of God as Savior. It's trying to save yourself. There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. And one is by keeping all the moral laws and being very good. The gospel is distinct from these two approaches. In its view, everyone is wrong, everyone is loved, and everyone is called to recognize this and change. Everyone is wrong. Everyone is loved. And everyone is called to recognize this and change. Whether or not you've been a really, really moral, self-righteous person or whether or not you've been a really, really immoral, ungodly person. It does not matter. Christ came into the world to be the go-between, to be the mediator between these two sinners. So that the righteous, quote-unquote, man would forsake his self-salvation project and turn and cleave to Christ, and the unrighteous man would reject his self-salvation project and turn and embrace Christ. Christ dies in our place. He comes into the world to save sinners. How does he do that? He does it, according to 1 Timothy 2.6, by being a ransom for us, by paying our debt that we owe to God for our sin. He absorbed. God is righteously angry. He's holy, as we sang about this morning. He's righteously angry with us in our sin. And Christ is sent out of God's love for us. So don't ever put those two things against each other. Christ comes out of love, but he comes as a response to the holiness of God. So Christ comes into the world to absorb in our place the wrath of God for our sins, suffered under the wrath of God for our sins on the cross, He dies for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He pays our debt so that we can be free from the punishment that our sins deserve.
That's the good news. That's the gospel. That Christ comes as a substitute for us. To live in our place, to die in our place, to rise again, that we might be reconciled to God. Well, how, how does it, all this link up? That's a historical event. That happened 2,000 years ago out in a middle, the Middle East on a hill somewhere. God's dealing with human sin. It's a historical fact. It's there. How, do, how does my life 2,000 years later get synced up with that reality? And here's what Paul says. This is the last thing I'll say. Number four, the gospel must be received by each of us individually. The gospel must be received by each of us individually. I get that from the very end of verse 15. Of whom the sinners, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I'm a sinner, of whom I'm the worst. I'm the foremost. So he said, I need that work too. Paul says, I'm a missionary right now. I'm planting churches. I'm doing the will of God, but I need what Jesus did. I need this truth. I need the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, what does he mean by that? Calling himself the foremost, the chief of sinners. This guy's a missionary after all. He's living for Jesus, doing God's will. And he uses the present tense. I am the chief of sinners. Well, we know he doesn't mean now that he sins more than he used to. I think that's pretty safe to say because he calls people to follow his example all over the place. Follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's obviously not saying, Joining me, join me in sin. Well, then what does he mean? I think he means at least two things. Number one, Paul was very, very keenly aware that his former life was the height of sin because he was directly opposing God. He was directly opposing the work of God. He was trying to snuff out what Jesus was doing by killing Jesus' people. He never got over that. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, he calls himself the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. And according to 1 Thessalonians, don't turn there, according to 1 Thessalonians 2, 15, to persecute the church is pretty terrible. Listen to this. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Paul's talking about other people that are doing what he used to do. He's saying those people that are opposing us from preaching to the Gentiles, that's exactly what Stephen was trying to do, and you were opposing him, Paul, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Nothing triggers God's wrath like this. Paul says the wrath of God is going to be displayed. It's coming upon these people who are opposing the work of God, who are opposing the preaching of the gospel, who are trying to snuff out Jesus actually trying to save people through the preaching of the gospel. So Paul said, look, that's, that's absolutely terrible, and he never got over that. So he, he, he rested in the fact that he was the foremost of sinners. But also, in light of the Holy Spirit's ongoing conviction in his heart and his growing nearness to God... Paul could not imagine anyone being worse than him. And this is the way every true Christian feels. This is one of the marks that God is at work in your life. If you stop looking at other people as being great sinners and start looking at yourself as one. It seems that he had an increasing sense of his sinfulness throughout his life. He calls himself the least of all the apostles. In 1 Corinthians 15:9, he says, I'm part of this apostolic group. I'm one of the apostles and I'm the least of them. I'm at the very tail end. But it gets worse than that later in his life. In Ephesians 3, 8, he calls himself the least of all Christians, the least of the saints. 
I'm, the, I'm at the bottom of the saints. And then here in 1 Timothy, where he's nearing the end of his life, he calls himself the chief of sinners. So he's moved from the group category of apostles to the category of Christians, now to the category of sinners. He considers himself worse than some unbelievers. That's the way he feels about his sin. And that's the way Christians feel about their sin. It doesn't lead them to walk and hang their head all the time. Paul said, I rejoice. He rejoiced. He commanded people to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. So he's not obviously talking about this kind of morbid preoccupation with his own sin. But nevertheless, he keenly felt, as John Stott says, he was vividly aware of his own sins, that he could not conceive anybody could be worse. It is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. So it's not enough merely to hear this good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It must be received. We must embrace it individually. How do we do this? Well, I think the text points us in the right direction. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Notice, first of all, verse 13. And hang on the second word. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. Paul's looking at his old life, and he's saying, I used to be that way. So the first thing it means to embrace the gospel is that you repent of your sins. Whether they are, I'm repenting of the fact that I've been trying to be moral without God. I'm repenting of that. I'm repenting of the fact that I'm trying to keep all of God's laws so that I don't have to receive Jesus. You need to repent of that too. That's the moral sinner. Or you need to repent of your sin, your obvious sin, your hatred, your despising and disobedience of your parents, your immorality, your impurity, your unrighteousness, your lying. Say, I'm turning away from that. I'm repenting of that. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to follow that course. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to rescue them out of a life of sin. And he'll do that presently. That's part. He's not just a savior for the future. He's a savior for now. He's, he will save you from your sin now, from its dominance of your life. If you will but turn. And how can we refuse to turn from what he died to save us from? So we turn from our sins. That's the first one. We not only do that, but we believe in Christ. Verse, 15, verse 16 again. As an example to those who are going to believe in him for eternal life. Example of those who are going to believe in him for eternal life. So believe in him. Believe in him. All these things that I've said, I believe the gospel's true and trustworthy. I believe it's intended for everybody. I believe that's why Jesus came, and I, I believe he came for me. That's where salvation takes place, at least in your personal experience, is when you recognize that not only Christ came into the world to save sinners, but you start tacking on what Paul tacked on, of whom I'm the foremost. I'm included in that cross work. When he was dying there on Calvary, when he was dying 2,000 years ago, my name was written on his hands. And you personalize it and take it in. Martin Luther said that. Christianity consists in personal pronouns. It consists in making that out there, here. Grabbing that for you. Laying hold of that and personalizing it. Saying, you know what, this isn't just my parents' faith. It's mine. This isn't just what my parents believe. This is what just what my church believes. This is what I believe. And I think, so, but, so there's so much confusion sometimes about what it means to believe in Christ. 
I think 1 Timothy 1.1 1, 1 helps point the way forward. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Our hope. It means putting your hope in Christ. Saying everything for this life and for eternity, it's all wrapped up in Him. And I, put, I transfer my hope. We all hope in things. We hope this is going to happen. I hope that things will work out. We transfer our hope from things and put it in Christ. Both our hope for our eternal salvation and our hope for a God-glorifying life here and now. We put all of our hope and transfer it to Christ. Well, let me close with two things, just by way of encouragement. Your past life does not disqualify you from salvation. That is Paul's point in these verses. He says in verse 16 that God showed him mercy so that people he would meet or that people who would read about him would not lose heart that God could save them too. If God saved the worst, he'll save you. So your past life does not disqualify you from experiencing salvation. That's another way that the devil will keep you captive to do his will. You'll think you're too rotten. You're dirty. You can't mingle with those people. You know what they're going to do? They're going to condemn you because you're dirty. You haven't lived the life they've lived. Listen, if you're, if you're a guest here and you've never maybe been here, you don't know how foul we are. If you knew how foul I was, I wouldn't stand here. I don't stand here because I'm great. I stand here because Jesus Christ saves sinners. Hear me. That's it. And that's our testimony. And if any Christian tells you contrary, anathema. They are not Christians. Christians acknowledge it's all of grace. It's all of God. It's nothing of us. We've merely received. We're beggars. We are garbage. And I just beg you to join the club. We're a hospital here. We're going to glory. And I'm inviting you to get in the hospital. We'll live in it for the rest of our lives. Some of us have been in the hospital a long time, and that's the only reason we're looking any better. Because Jesus heals. Some of us have not been in the hospital very long. Have patience with them. Don't condemn them too quickly. And think, well, if they were a Christian, they wouldn't look at me like this. They may have been saved a week. All right, so have patience. Join the hospital. We are sinners, desperately broken. Let me say this as well, and with this I'll close. Your past life of sin also does not disqualify you from service now. Not only salvation, you say, yeah, God's going to save me and He's going to kind of put me on the bench because I'm worthless. It's not true. Paul is a case in point. Moses is a case in point. Abraham is a case in point. David is a case in point. Every man that God has used, God has used because they were so unworthy to be used. 
He does not look out for what the world looks out for. God saves losers. God saves nobodies. So that when people are saved through them, or so that when good is done through them, praise goes to God. That's the only reason. There are a few. There are a few popular. There are a few noble. There are a few wise in this age whom God has saved, but there are not many. God typically chooses, goes after the slums of India. He goes after Owensboro, regular folks. And he saves the mighty too. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't shun people like that. So don't let your past life disqualify you from the belief that you can't be saved or the belief that you can't have a meaningful life that will bear fruit into eternity. Because you can. You have breath right now that God has given you. And He wants to use that so that you will store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and where thieves will not break and steal. And He wants to give you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's going to cost in this age. I would not tell you that salvation is an easy path. It is not. It's a narrow way. It's hard. It's hard to swim upstream. It's hard. But salvation, and that's why God has called us into the church, because we help each other get to heaven. We help each other fight. We help each other follow. We help each other pursue Christ. And at times, we've got to run over to each other and grab them and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Do you not believe what you said you believed? Thomas Bilney said this one sentence, exhilarated his heart, removed his guilt, freed him from despair, gave him comfort and peace. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves this morning in your presence and thank you for your great love with which you've loved us. We marvel. We marvel that we can have hope. We're so thankful that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that we can, we can place our whole life on that. We can rest there and know that till our dying breath it will be true and into eternity it will be true because you have done it, you have revealed it, you have spoken, you have accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished in the work of Christ to save us. So we are thrilled this morning. Our pray that an exhilaration of heart would fill this place that there is such a Savior, that there is such a hope. We're not going to see this on television tomorrow or this afternoon. Nobody's going to come and say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is totally contrary to everything in our culture, and that's why it's true. So we pray that the reality, the truthfulness, would be received by us all and embraced by us all. In Jesus' name. Please receive this uh, benediction. That word is bendición in español. It just means a blessing, a blessing to carry with you. Remember this. This is what the apostle to the Hebrews says. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, 
he approved of that sacrifice. That's why he raised him up. It was finished. It was fully approved. Raised him from the dead and made him the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. May he do this. Equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.